Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of Goblin Lore. In this episode, we talk to Michelle Rapp of Card Kingdom about the color pie and how it relates to certain art movements throughout history. This episode, we think, is super important because it digs into a real-life parallel for the color pie and color theory in Magic the Gathering, sort of a way for you to relate your understanding of the game to a real-life analogy, or take a real-life analogy that you already know and relate it back to the game and the lore and the flavor of colors. We're super grateful to Michelle for coming on to this podcast. We recorded for about two hours in total, so this is split up into two different episodes. So, without any further ado... Thank you all for listening, and let's get to the show. Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of Goblin Lore. This week, we are super excited. Uh, we are joined by our first guest ever on the show, and uh, it's, she, she's a doozy. Um, this is... <laughs> I, I, I don't know if that's a compliment. I'm, a, I'm saying it as a compliment, but this is Michelle Rapp. Uh, she's a writer for Card Kingdom. She's one of the cast members of another Vorthos podcast, The Lore Goifs. Um, so Michelle is here to talk to us about art movements, uh, how they fit into magic lore on the whole, but also specifically how they fit into color theory and the color pie. But before we go on to the main topics, I would love my lovely co-hosts to introduce themselves, um, tell the listeners where they can find you on the interwebs, and what piece of magic art or flavor text resonates with you the most. Uh, and why don't we start with you, Michelle? Well, hello. Thank you for that very lovely introduction. I have to say I'm very flattered by being called a doozy. That's quite something. Um, <laughs> Seriously, we're kind of old men on the show. We apologize flat it's out. Well, it's well. It's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, you can find me on the interwebs. I write for Card Kingdom. Um, I also collaborate with the professor. Um, I help write his Tolarian Tutor series. And I also um, can be found on my Vorthos comedy podcast, The Lorgoifs. Uh, we take ourselves extremely seriously as as a group of very distinguished, very intelligent Vorthos people, hmm. um, which is why we make lots of rupture spire jokes and so uh <laughs> this is a family cast i don't know if we <laughs> so uh you can find me on twitter at balefire strix um as in a bale that's on fire but also there's an owl involved somehow uh, so the magic flavor text that really um that really resonates with me is actually one from dominaria um it's actually the one from lyra dawnbringer and I know it's a really heartfelt kind of sappy one. It's not the funniest, but it does make me feel like very warm and fuzzy inside. It says, you are not alone. You never were. And it just it just makes me feel like Lyra Dawnbringer herself is there with her kick-ass, amazing, glowing stained glass window armor. Just like there to give me a very somehow quite comfortable hug despite all of the plate armor. And it's just great. So... It it just it's it's a wonderful wonderful piece of of flavor text and I think it's one of the best honestly. I'm Hobbs Q. I can be found on Twitter at Hobbs Q. Um, so uh, my favorite piece of magic art that really resonates right now with me is from is not actually ever used on a card. Uh, it was 
in a book celebrating the 20th anniversary of Magic the Gathering. Uh, we saw this at the Light Gray Art Lab um, art event recently that was literally um, fan art and art to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Magic. They had a copy of this book that I had never seen, and in it was a piece by Ed Beard Jr., who was referencing back to his original Nicol Bolas art, and it's literally his updated 20 years later Bolas, and the piece of work is entitled A Good Book. <laughs> and I, I think it just really resonates with me to prove that my theories about Bolas are true. All of them. And what theories are those? He sparked because people wouldn't let him read. Oh. I'm your host, Joe Redman. You can find me on Twitter at Findhorn. That's F-Y-N-D Horn. Um, and I've been really digging uh, into Jeff Miracola's work lately because I'm putting together uh, a deck full of his uh, cards or cards that feature his artwork for the upcoming GP Minneapolis. Listeners are going to hear this after the GP, but we're, you know, we're still in that that lead up week. But so I've seen a lot of Raging Goblin and I that that has been one of my favorite. It's one that's stuck with me forever. It's just fantastic flavor tech. He raged at the world, at his family, at his life, but mostly he just raged. And I, 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 I just there's something about that where. I don't know that it's, it necessarily says something about me. Maybe it does. Maybe there's a deeper psychological discussion to be had about that. But I I just love that idea of, yeah, he doesn't really know what he wants, what he's raging about. He's just raging. That's just what he does. That's his whole thing. Uh, I really like that, Michelle, you pointed out the um, Lyra Donbringer one. Because we had kind of a discussion yesterday about flavor text and mental health. And the Lyra one mm -hmm. got cited as kind of a very popular one that people identified with when talking about their own resiliency and mental health. Um, the other one was from the new Ajani Enchantment, and my mind went blank on the card name. I, I know which one you're talking about. It is a... Um, presence? It's No? Yeah, Ajani's Presence or something like that. It's the one with the golden globy bits. Yes. Um Johnny's Welcome is, I believe, what it's called. And it says, uh, pulling it up here, you cannot defend others if your own well-being is neglected. And it's the is real it? first, yeah. It's it's one of the best mindfulness quotes that we've seen so far in flavor text. Um, I And it actually was, this flavor text was written by another psychologist um, from San Diego who plays Magic the Gathering. Oh, that's um, amazing. Yeah, so... Uh, Billy is his name. Um, people probably know him as Billy Sense or Billy San Juan. Um, he is the really, really just Billy and Grayso. Um, he worked a lot of GPs for both Channel Fireball, Wizards. Him and I worked a pro tour together, which is how I really got to know him. Um, he also writes favorite texts for Wizards recently started, and that was one of his first contributions. So That's awesome. That's a, yeah. that's that's amazing. a home run. So when we're time talking about, you know, we've been having more and more episodes. I mean, we obviously, I'm always kind of trying to bring in the psychological piece. Uh, that flavor text has just really stuck out in the discussion that spiraled from there, or I know spiraled, started from there, was was really good. But Lyra was one of the other ones that got brought up. Yeah, and it's, I, I think those are 
really resonant with people um, because of, you know, where we are in the world right now. You know, there's there's a lot going on that is messed up. There's a lot going on that's really daunting and bigger than all of us. And I mean, it's it's nice to have that that game that a lot for a lot of us is an escape also be something that that you know reinforces who we are or what we want or what we want to be um there's something (laughs) i want to bring up with that a little bit later as we get into uh our discussions um but i I, yeah i think that's i think that's really great and it fits with with what we're talking about a little bit today in in the sense of the color pie and in the sense of philosophy and and Hobbes, you're all, like you said, you're always going to bring in the psychology, but fitting in with philosophy and the color pie and, and White's philosophy is very much that that self-care and group care and all that. So I think that's perfect. well, when white is when white is at its best. Right. Yes, absolutely. When white is at its best, it is mindful and selfless and caring and compassionate. Um, and as worse, it's completely intolerant and fascist. So. Uh, yeah, and conformist to say the least. Um, yeah. So we're getting a little bit of both these days, actually. Uh, which, which is <laughs> yeah. actually, a, a, I think this is a good transition to just jump in here for us. We talked about the color pie, I think, a little bit in previous episodes. Um, but let's kind of explain very you know, nuts and bolts for somebody who's never dealt with Magic the Gathering before or never dealt with this idea of what the color pie and color philosophy is in magic on not just on a game sense, but in a lore sense, in a, in a world building sense. Uh, let's, let's break that down. When I introduce folks to the color pie, I try to root it as basically the sandbox and the world in which the game is built. Uh, I try to liken it to some, something like civ civilization, the game where you have um, different leaders with different philosophies on how, victory can be attained and then there's different victories within the game right like you've got your cultural victory you've got your let's kill everyone victory and let's the uh, let's go to moon slash mars victory and the color pie is very similar to that in except instead of like 16 different personalities and also new downloadable content uh you basically just have five entities that um in their own way kind of encompass a lot of the uh, motivations and philosophies that you can find commonly in a lot of world leaders and a lot of different philosophers and in art movements, um, but kind of help sort of amplify a little bit of uh, different aspects, I think, of human psychology and human um I guess just the, the, uh, various human attributes. So that that's generally how I try to couch the entire discussion and we, I always start with, I always go in Wuburg order because, um, of course, Wuburg. But white, you know, I, I like to sort of ad lib um, Mark Rosewater's articles, which generally starts with white. And white's always the color that wants peace. And peace is, on the surface, can be a great thing. Um, white is, but that doesn't, it doesn't mean that white is a pacifist. It means that it wants, then its victory condition is peace and order. And it's willing to find that peace through a structure and a system that makes sense according to the values that that particular person wants to implement and enforce on other people. Not everyone's going to understand it and everyone's going to get it, but everyone has their own place within the society and understands their 
you know, what they're doing has a greater purpose. It's for their greater good, as, you know, Hot Fuzz might put it. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> the greater good. And so when you think of... And so, like we mentioned before, white at its best is egalitarian. It can be incredibly socialist, I suppose, if we're going to throw in some um, political science terms. Um, it can be uh, extremely benevolent. It can be caring and compassionate. It's a color that sees everyone in its society and wants to make room for that person and make sure that person is provided for. Um, it doesn't mean that person is going to get everything they want, but it does mean that person is going to get everything they need. If we take that structure, though, and invert it um, and make it such that anyone who thinks outside of the box is immediately excommunicated, like if we look at the blacklist um, from, uh, I think, like 1930s Hollywood, um, where we had directors and other folks being actually no that was 1950s right yeah it was 1950s um of where we had directors and people in hollywood being blacklisted because of their supposed communist leanings um where we basically have a an environment that doesn't encourage diversity of thought that um any any threat to the greater good would come from the individual so squashing that out immediately as soon as possible is imperative for a not necessarily maliciously aligned white force, but um, definitely, you know, they're not super interested in self-expression, artistic expression that speaks to anything other than the greater values. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, we've talked a little bit about, you know, like the McCarthyism, it's kind of that there's there's orders and there's laws and whatever the prevailing thought at that moment is, needs to be conformed to. So yeah radicals or anybody that's kind of going to have these really more extreme views in the opposite of groupthink really need to be brought into line, which is why it's not so good end. Yes. And it's, it's a really powerful thing though. And it, I mean, that's one of the reasons why white is such an incredibly powerful color when you unite so many disparate elements into a single goal and concentrate all your efforts in that direction. It is something that's incredibly terrifying. Um, but on the other hand, if you have everybody's like this sort of mindless cult person, I mean, that's not going to be super great either. <laughs> right. Um, a, a perfect example of that, that downside of white, that the negative part of white is uh, Kamigawa. The, the main villain, the main antagonist was a white uh, character. Um, and now uh, he's slipping my mind. Is it Kanda? Thought that the best thing for his people to do would be kidnap a creature from the Kami, you know, the, the Kami egg, uh, which became, you know, uh, blah, blah, blah. Long story, Kamigawa. Um, oh, Kami, not communist. Gotcha. Right. Not Kami's Kami. <laughs> I was like, we're really going com- deep this on the time McCarthy. with the socialism. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm, Conda, McCarthy, I mean, it's close, you know? <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that's a perfect example of it. He thought that the best way to benefit his people would be to do that. However, he gave no consideration to other groups. He gave no consideration to the, you know, the balance of the world. It was this, it was this small, you know, sort of protecting his, his people, his power, in that way. So, that I mean, right? I know we're, we're, we're already just on white, but we're introducing this larger concept of the color pie right now. So I think, 
I want to just interject a little bit with one thing that we've talked a little bit on the show before about is this concept of continuums versus dichotomies. And I think that it's important to realize that when we're going to be talking about all of these colors, at their essence, these colors boiling down to their individual white, blue, black, red, green, no overlap, no looking at color combinations, which is something that makes the color wheel and the color pie in general just completely complex. Um, but even looking within individual colors, we kind of see that white, for instance, can have this extreme order at one end and this more morality or this kind of, like we've talked about this, this peace, this mindfulness, this, I mean, holiness in some ways, in w which we've seen, it, it, these are kind of continuums. So you can move between them. And, and that's where, you know, I think we're going to be talking a lot about this in general, but the goal for me is always to find the balance. And that where you get into trouble is when you start getting to the extremes of both ends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I would absolutely agree. Um, I, as a slight segue, I was I was actually thinking about artistic expressions um, within white on the darker side of things. And the first thing that came to mind was Triumph of the Will, um, which was a Nazi propaganda um, film that was one of the first of its kind to really do like these incredibly s silly long takes of like people marching forever um deliberately angling shots such that you know these the soldiers looked amazing and um really just celebrating the Aryanness of of the of what the motherland ought to be under this government and and that's sort of i think how art sort of works in a purely mono white world it is to some extent propaganda um because it is i mean that's the only kind of expression that could exist in a mono white universe it's it's basically um art that glorifies the status quo mm. and that's sort of the problem with white as a as a color white is not adaptable it is the least adaptable of all the colors um peace is a good thing to have but when you have dead quiet, it means that there is no sound. There is no ability to make noise. You can't change things. Things are static. Um, white very much loves to, that's why you have a lot of white enchantments and edicts and whatnot, just lay down the law and keep that law there almost in perpetuity. And so the flexibility of white just is not there. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, you have characters like Gideon, like Johnny, have such a hard time Um looking inside and figuring out how to change those particular flaws within themselves. Um, and they're also, they also can be really judgmental. Um, yeah. And coming from that art perspective, I really, you bringing up Triumph of the Wills reminds me, you talked about the shots and the way that they were done from angles to make the soldiers look beautiful and to make it look strong. Um, a lot of controversy has been had over the director of the film because even people such as Spielberg and George Lucas had talked about like her contributions to cinema. Uh, Lenny Reifenstahl, if I remember if that's yeah, the pronunciation. Yeah, Lenny Reifenstahl. Uh, yeah. Reifenstahl. Yeah. Stahl. No, she... And then, yeah, it's a really controversial thing because we have these big name directors, one of whom Spielberg is, I mean, obviously directly impacted by the Holocaust talking about how do you separate the art from the person, which is something I've been struggling with a lot. 
Mm -hmm. um, the death of the, the author question. Yeah, yeah, the death of the author question is is very much uh, co a question that kind of almost it's interesting because so if you ask each of the different colors that question, I, each of them would have a completely different answer, hmm. and that's what's really interesting about the color wheel. So if you ask white, like, does the author's intent? count towards the interpretation of the piece then white would absolutely say yes because white looks at the whole white looks at the artist and the creator and sees an indelible um inviolate link between both the work and its creator blue would also blue would maybe be on the on the edge there blue might say no because blue is more about like what how does this piece like push forward and progress the field as a whole and how does it exist in i guess contention with other ideas within the same space um black would just be black i think would also maybe agree with white and say that the author does um have some kind of a relationship there and that they do matter because you have to see how this piece benefits and amplifies the uh voice of the art of the artist red what might just be like who who really cares <laughs> and because red is all about freedom of expression and at the end of the day it's that freedom that counts the fact that they were able to do that 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 action that counts rather than the necessarily the product or the person who did it and green is kind of like it's there it's just part of the fabric of things they are both equal um and they Art, but they're not as important as the larger context of how this piece is regarded. And so, um, sorry, I just kind of went on that weird tangent there because it was like, that's an interesting question. Um, What's funny is I actually I was that. just going to compliment you on your transition. I thought you were going to move just straight into blue. And either way, that idea of like moving to how the other colors would answer that question was way smoother than most of our transitions on the show. <laughs> I mean, what's interesting about blue and art uh, is that blue is, I think, more... It's it's like, if I think of a blue artist, I think of, um, like, the Italian Renaissance artist Leonardo da Vinci um, because he was technically amazing like if you look at his uh the way his brush strokes you know the the lighting that that soft like haziness that he manages to achieve around his pieces he's got that perfect like trifecta thing going on i don't know if you noticed but like in a lot of renaissance art you've got like three people looking at each other and it's like supposed to represent perspective and also like the holy trinity and things like that but he's also like the creator of the vitruvian man he created like the first tank um he's not someone who's like constrained by um any particular morality he's interested in using his um artistic talents to pursue knowledge and the furthering of ideas that he has i mean he's like one of the first people to i think actually do an autopsy right yep. so um yeah, yeah. And, and that's mm -hmm. and so that's it's amazing so he's not like sure he made the mona lisa but when we think of leonardo da vinci we don't really think about him the same we would say like gustav klimt um klimt was all about like let's it's let's play around with perspective and and flatness and texture and shine um that i think is is very very different than like the way um da vinci was very much all about like okay how do i use my beautiful um drawing sketching technique in order to capture the way a man's liver is placed in his <laughs> chest cavity you know well, I mean, and, 
I was just thinking when you brought up Da Vinci, to me that epitomizes blue when we're talking about art. I mean, we have somebody that's known as a master painter for both The Last Supper and um, The Mona Lisa. I mean, for at least those two pieces just alone. I am somebody who's way more drawn to, I would love to have around our house like a Vitruvian man or some of the, the flying machines or the tanks and the the drawings that are based in mathematics that, that look at the symmetry of the human being um, almost look like old med school text. I mean, my wife and I have talked about this, like wanting to have that kind of old art that was used in medical textbooks because we didn't have these photos of a liver. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we didn't we didn't have a just easy way to look at that. And so if you look at the old even Gray's Anatomy, the original, I mean, there's I love the old scientific drawings that were just so technically beautiful from a sketch standpoint, but were also purposeful to educate and to teach. Yeah, no, it's, and I actually, when I was studying at Cornell, I had a um, the good fortune of studying under um, a professor who had gotten, who's one of the most um, well-renowned botanical artists like scientific botanical artists in the world (laughs) and it's just like when she talked about how she the process by which she goes into uh, creating an illustration it's not it's not about trying to capture like light it's about trying to capture the components of this particular plant of this particular piece and help explain it in an educational way towards uh, to the viewer to the audience and so it's a it's a very different message in that particular case um but it's not that blue is also but blue is also interested in like empathy as well and so i think that's um what's really cool about like pieces that um i'm trying to think of like a really strong empathic piece like um i almost think like guernica is probably maybe by picasso is somehow like blue and it's it's desire to kind of show you the horrors of what's going on albeit in a very abstract way but mm-hmm. it really presses upon you the importance of the disaster and the sadness and the waste of the people who died in, in this particular incident just because the nazis were like oh well we just kind of want to test out our planes so we're going to bomb this tiny town um and yeah, so I, I think that there are different aspects of blue, and like there were like there were in white, but I think blue has a little bit more flexibility, not as much as say red, but um, I think there's a lot there that can be played with in terms of um, just using art as like not just as a tool of expression, but also of education. So I want to. I, I had a gut reaction to that about Guernica. I'm not gonna lie. Mm-hmm. Like, no worries. I I totally was like, okay, I can go with this. The blue, and yet I'm seeing. To me, I guess I I, I now we're getting into where we we either talk about guilds or we talk about these pairs yeah. of colors. And and I mean, I think that my reaction was. No. That there was, <laughs> yeah, that my impulsivity, my emotions, I. And pulling this like the passion that led it's, to him yeah. painting it's, that. It's primary red, but I <sighs> think that the visceral reaction is is at least the empathy yeah. aspect. Yeah. No, and I mean, and this is and this is why the 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 color pie in general. It is the founding block 
for magic. I mean, it is what mm-hmm. Richard Garfield intended. <laughs> um, <laughs> we all say that, but I mean, he, he, they hadn't, he had this idea behind it and it's been codified and it's really been strengthened over the years. So the color pie really kind of defines a lot behind how we play the game. And it's, it's just fascinating to me because we're seeing, like you said, your reaction to it versus the creation of it could have been along very different axes. So mm-hmm. I was wondering if you want to finish up on the blue portion. I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but just thinking of, I really want to move into black. I don't know. I'm just I want really to move excited. into black too, actually. I, uh, I, it's my favorite color. <laughs> then yeah. I, I... <laughs> It's my side of the color pie. So yeah, no, I I hit I hear you. Um, white and black are my favorite colors. So, uh, but black being like the the top here. I think art in black is all about the celebration of the self, and I think the epitome of art within black is a portrait. Um, hmm. It primarily like you know those like older uh, portraits done by uh, Vermeer, the Dutch masters, as well as Italian, like the Medici's, you basically have a person standing there surrounded by symbolic objects, um, expressing their power and like what industries they're involved in is basically just like a resume, but on uh, not even resume. It's like a look at me, look how awesome I am with my sumptuous silks and the fact that I have salt. Um, it's it's as, a, as a it's a painting version of of the uh, Egyptian pharaoh tombs, basically. I mean, it's it's all of the things yeah. that you know you want to show everybody. Look, this is what I've got. Yeah, it's a display of power. Mm. Um, is the is the heart of portraiture, um, and that it's been that way for such a long time. I mean, who who has portraits? People who. we're sitting down and commissioning people to actually paint them so uh the vanderbilts uh, the rothschilds i mean gustav klimt as i mentioned before did a number of uh portraits for like very well-renowned like ladies of like french and italian um society and so it was kind it's kind of a big deal it's there to show things off it's also there to show off like your beauty and um like what you can afford which is really amazing which is what I mean, if we if we contrast this, for example, with like, um, like the portraits that uh, not portraits so much, but like the snapshots of like Toulouse Lautrec in um, the Moulin Rouge, um, mm-hmm. he would often do like pictures of like I would say this is uh, Toulouse Lautrec is more red green personally, but um, he's definitely very red when he like shows off these pictures and like moments of dancers um who probably are also ladies of negotiable affection on the side they're not anyone <laughs> they're not anyone super important in like family show family <laughs> i'm sorry we're talking about art and that's gonna <laughs> inevitably rub up against some things whoa wow. rub up against Literally. Some thi- <laughs> oh man it's off the rails um but but yeah like i i just think the portrait is such a perfect perfect thing for black that and like also um like work intricate works of craft like i think that you know things like faberge eggs and whatnot it's such like a black thing to have like look at me i have a freaking egg made of crystal and gold with a (laughs) tiny little thing that makes tiny pigs inside like i have no idea you know like it's just insanity well that's kind of why i loved when we went to kaladesh in magic and we got to see gonti 
you know, the Etherborn um, sort of crime syndicate leader, uh, his card title literally is Gonti Lord of Luxury. And all he does is collect these beautiful pieces of art and artifacts. And, you know, he adorns himself with all of these intricately wrought um you know metal filigree plates and and a mask and all of these things i mean that's that to me is that sort of um like you said the de medici sort of you know adorn yourself adorn your life you know show your power through what you have black is very extra when it comes to art <laughs> so so very extra just the most extra. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you bring bringing up the Medici. Kind of reminded me. Michelle just talked about her favorite being the black white combination, and I really hit on that when we're talking about people who would have like be patrons, and it's because they want to be able to afford the best people to make their art, or be able to afford the best portraits of themselves. Which kind of reminds me of the Orzov. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, totally. Like when you when you think mm-hmm. of. Uh, I, I keep bringing up Clint because I just saw a, a tiny documentary on him. But, um, like, he, he freaking used, like, gold leaf on his paintings. He's known for it. And that was just a show of, like, look at how 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 bougie I can make your portrait. <laughs> um, and, and, I mean, like, that's I think that's true for the Medicis, too, when you look at, like, any of their paintings. Like, like making lapis into or or making um pigments is just such an onerous task and the skill and the money involved to just create such a thing it's such a it's such an expression of power and that's what black loves the most um it's the reason why i think liliana is the most well-dressed of Mm. the uh of the the gate watch because she knows that looking good is is another subtle way of grabbing power yeah, so uh, that's pretty much all I have to say on black because it's just so succinct like that. But yeah, like big statues to yourself, that's very black. <laughs> um, I feel like there's yeah. a lot of black in architecture too, depending on on how it's used. Um, you know, some of, <laughs> some of those beautifully, uh, like you were saying, the gold leaf that, that Klimt used on his paintings. I, I mean, there's there's a lot of those. Uh, uh, what uh, Now I'm, gosh, it's been so long since I've had an art history class. The name of Louis XIV's palace. Versailles? Thank you. Yes, Versailles. Oh, my gosh. But imagine being somebody walking into the the court of the Sun King, and you're just blown away by how much opulent wealth there is literally dripping from the walls. I mean, that's a a tradition that continues until today. I mean, when you look at Time's cover, you know, with, like, your portrait being taken by Anne Leibovitz or someone else and your your face is on there as the notorious new time person of the year or um I don't know you or MTV Cribs. It, I mean that's yes you know like yes for all you millennials out there. Yes. <laughs> I'm just gonna be over here with my avocado <sighs> stash. But yeah, no absolutely absolutely it's it's that it's that opulence, it's that example of power and uh, I think that's perfect. Red is freaking <laughs> like the fountain by it's the Duchamp. Dada. Yeah, it's the Dadaist. It's Dada. It's a Dadaist. It's a surrealist. It's the modernist. Like I, the futurist even too. And this is oh, yeah, can we futurist. talk about continuum here with Dada and and futurism and and that I I think futurism is red at its worst. And and I have a big opinion <laughs> on this. But well, so futurism essentially was thinking about how we can how we can take 
the concepts of speed and power and, you know, travel and progression and machine and condense it down into art. And, you know, on the surface of that, I think that's a really fascinating and compelling concept. Um, uh, Mayakovsky was a Russian futurist and uh, Tommaso Marinetti was a, an Italian futurist and both of them had really fascinating perspectives on this on this form um, you know they would take I mean, it was a little bit, you know, they had some ideas that were similar to cubism or execution that was similar. They had really fractured, you know, uh, splotches of, of color on paintings. And, and a lot of it was just trying to capture that idea of what is something zooming past your eye? You know, how do you make that a crystallized moment? Um, really, some of their best stuff in my mind is, is sculpture. But the philosophy behind it is so, you know, it's so... Uh, it it's a little bit of it's red as at its worst in that it's all about passion and fury and it's it's raging goblin it's passion and fury and rage <laughs> you know at the cost of anything else it's burn it all down you know it it's burn it all down so we can build something new but then it's build something new so we can burn it all down again and that to me is is that darker side of of where red goes yeah so, no i oh go ahead sorry I just wanted. This is just a random fact because what you're bringing up a little bit with this is the chaos nature of red, but there is and can be order to it. Um, the reason I bring this up when it comes to art movements is one of the most fascinating things that I learned recently, and I don't know if either of you have heard about this. Um, if you want, Joe, I can send you the article so that it can be um, loaded. Please do. Uh, you guys know who Jackson Pollock is, obviously, mm-hmm. of course. right? Okay. Jackson Pollock is famous for our listeners. If you if you haven't seen his work, his, he did drip paintings, and he's also kind of known for being that kind of the person that everybody's like, my kids could just do that, you know? drip paint onto a can, throw it all over the wall. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but they actually can use fractal analysis, which is a really, within chaos theory and mathematic fractals are these complex, very ordered, in some ways, designs that look random or chaotic at first. Um, Using fractals, they can actually validate whether something is or is not a Jackson Pollock painting. What? Almost Stop like... applying blue to my red paintings, yo. <laughs> right. But I mean, there is kind of this that shows that, that they are fractal. Um, the fingerprint of nature they talk about, but but there actually has been use of this to validate or to kind of uh, show that some of the paintings were his um, in, in terms of people trying to pass off work or show them. So we again get this really the complexity of art and even within chaos and we've talked about chaos theory on this cast before and that you can have order out of chaos and i think that when we're talking about art within a red realm even something like drip painting there is a whole study of nature on fractals that talk about why we find them pleasing to the eye and that even chaos can be calming or look beautiful to the eye hmm but there's but what I love about okay so I I actually do have a soft spot for this Jadaist and surrealists and the artists of Flexus mm-hmm. um because they like and Duchamp because they they are pushing 
expression. They are all about expression and the um, egalitarian nature of like anyone, everyone is entitled to making art regardless of who you are. And um, the, the artist I actually think of whenever I um, consider like red at its purity and in terms of art is Yoko Ono. And I know she gets a mm. lot of hate, but um, <laughs> so Yoko Ono um, was one of the first artists to do um, it's almost like prescriptive art. So uh, basically there, for example, like it create, so she would create these um instruction manuals basically of just like of of you to create like this is how you create art one was like light a match hold it until the flame goes out watch the smoke dissipate and that was the that was the piece that was the performance and it's like she took that performance art to the next level and really kind of helped invite people to come in and to share that space with them because for so long art has been this conversation this one-sided conversation between the artist and the audience and now for example when she did cut piece uh which was a performance piece that she did uh, back in uh the 1960s she basically sat there and had people cut off pieces of her clothing using scissors and it was a very interesting setup because she was basically inviting people to come and ex like interact with her in a really close physical setting. It almost reminds me of Marina Abramovic. Um, she is another very well-known performance artist. She did a uh, living door where she and another guy, they were naked and they were standing in the doorway of this door and the people who were invited to this exhibit had to pass between the two of them. And so it really helped people challenge and engage with this idea of like, what is privacy? How do I feel as I go through this door? How does this challenge my norms? Like is, are my norms of like what private space is like, are they even valid? And that's what I really love about this aspect of, of like, it's the art history it's just this idea of constantly challenging what it is to do to create art what is the intent of the artist how does the audience engage with the artist and how much should art be an institution versus for the people and and i think that's just what's really brilliant about this particular aspect of history even though it's a kind of weird and consists of like eggs and very randomly recorded instruments and and paint <laughs> so <laughs> that's our show you can find the podcast on twitter at goblin lore pod you can email us any questions comments or concerns at goblin lore podcast at gmail.com you can find joe Redman at findhorn that's f-y-n-d horn on twitter you can find hobbs q at hobbs q and you can find Alex at Alexander New M. One last bit of business before we go. We do have a giveaway to announce. Thanks to reaching our 200 follower goal on Twitter. This giveaway, we are going to be giving away an original magic paperback novel that may or may not have a little gift tucked in alongside as a bookmark. And so our random draw winner here is... Max, that's at MTG underscore JLP on Twitter. So Max, get in contact with us. Let us know where we can send your prize to, and we'll have a couple of choices for you as well. For everyone else, 
Please keep retweeting the episodes of the show. Please tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is the best way to spread news about a podcast. So if you like what we're doing, please let other people know. And when we get to 300 followers, we will have another giveaway. Thank you all for listening. And remember, goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers. <laughs>